everybody. This is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. There's lots of great races across Oregon that would really shift the balance of power pretty significantly. But I mean, it is a free for all. I don't think there's any nominee that thinks that they're the one that's supposed to win or that they were just supposed to be coronated. I think on the Republican side, we got a pretty hot ticket uh, race, just like we have on the on the Democratic side. So it's interesting to see these races. I hadn't thought about it until we were talking about how much they mirror each other. This will be the most important election in everyone's lifetime, as it always is. And so <laughs> supporting your party nominee will matter more than if that nominee is perfect. Hey, everybody. We're excited to have you back for another episode. And today is a real special episode because today we have with us Reagan Canope, who will be talking about all things. Well, actually, we'll get a little bit into the Dems, too, but all things GOP primaries, amounts folks have raised, who's up, who's down. This will be a heavy, heavy politics episode. But first, Reagan, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Oh, it's good to be back. I'm coming to you not from Oregon, but from the state that liberals love and Republicans love to hate, California. Reagan, is it true that you are having meetings with Governor Gavin Newsom to discuss progressive policy ideas while you're in California? That's 100% false. Thank you for uh, giving me the chance to clear the air on that. I definitely thought, Ben, you were going to make a, a Bob Tannerman joke uh, meeting with him in California, but you, we are you trying to one. we're trying to schedule an interview with Bob Tiernan, and we hope that uh, we hope that works out. Let's talk primary politics. So, Reagan, I think before we jump into congressional races and legislative races, obviously the race that I think the most people are paying attention to is the governor's race. I thought you were going to say the U.S. Senate Republican primary against <laughs> highly defeatable Ron Wyden. I just said, I just saw uh, the Oregonian did a compilation of all the amount raised by all the people running for Congress or Senate in Oregon, and they made it into like a bar graph so you can see how everyone stacks up. And Ron Wyden is at $11.7 million raised. <laughs> yeah, and, and he could probably win with like a quarter of that. Yes, or less. Yeah, well, we'll, anyway, we'll get to the Senate. But before we get to the Senate, let's talk about the governor's race. Everybody's running for governor. Give us a rundown of how you see at least the top two. Who's the top tier of the GOP primary as we head into the final week of the election primary? Yeah, it definitely feels like, and I'm looking for, I'm scrolling through, I should have had this open, uh, Oregon Catalyst, which had covered first the poll that came from Nelson Research on Star Wars Day, May the 4th. And so that poll really shows... How would you rate the polling from them, Reagan, overall, in terms of historical? I haven't seen a ton of their polling public historically. This is kind of one of the first big races where they've dropped polls so far. So I think this race will kind of really test them in terms of the the publicly released polling that they're doing. And I give them a lot of credit because primary polling is a lot tougher than general election polling because it's not... You don't have those two polarized segments that are really easy to target. Primary polling and primaries in general are a lot more fluid. So that poll showed Drazen getting 19% of the vote, Bob Tiernan getting 14% of the vote. That includes people who said they're voting for those candidates or they're leaning towards voting for those candidates. Bud Pierce at 9.5%, Dan Pulliam at 6.9%. Those are the top four in that poll. I think that there could be some late movement if there's some spending, like Bridget Barton has a lot of cash on hand and she just went up on TV. So I think that could move the numbers a little bit. And uh, Pulliam, Pierce, Tiernan and Drazen are all on TV. Drazen's actually the biggest spender on TV with over like 1.2 million spent. Uh, I was going to say- About 800,000, probably more by now. 
Reagan, you wrote a newsletter post that basically said you trust not, I don't know, you didn't say you trust these numbers, but these numbers seem right to you. What was that based on? Yeah, so that's based on, and there's some, been some data from a group called Echelon, I think it's pronounced Echelon Insights, Patrick Ruffini on Twitter. Uh, He's really Mm -hmm. great. He did a study of money and vote share and whether they correlate. And they said, especially they do in open primaries. In challenger primaries, not as much. That's more about issues than money. But in open primaries, money correlates a ton with who gets the most votes. And so Drazen spent, when I wrote this, 1.1 million on TV. Tiernan was about 900,000. Bud Pierce is almost 400,000. And then Bridget had bought about 275,000. Polyam 150,000. So, so the numbers are roughly correlating with the fundraising slash TV spending. So the polling and those kind of things are matching up, especially in the top four or five candidates. So it definitely seems right. We'll have to obviously wait for election day to see how things go because there are some candidates who have some very, very rabid online fan bases. And we'll see if that really translates into that, those strong votes or get out the vote programs. What is going on with Bud? I guess those, those numbers were particularly shocking to me. One, because I mean, Bob has not even been an active candidate for what, like a month and a half, maybe, maybe two months. Filing he's, so March, he would have been, yeah, two months now. Yeah. So, uh, it, yeah. So when this podcast comes out, basically two months, I mean, obviously he has historical relevance in Oregon, but it was sort of shocking to me to see him come in second place relatively quickly. I know a lot of people too, who wanted Drazen to run had been criticizing Drazen because they thought that she hadn't jumped in early enough. Now, maybe that won't matter because, of course, she's first in the polls right now. But what is going on from your perspective with Bud? I mean, top of the ticket before, spent a bunch of money in his race before. Like, he raised a respectable and spent a respectable amount. Like, why are we not seeing his numbers higher, especially since it seems, I guess I probably haven't, I don't know exactly the numbers in terms of name ID for each of these candidates. But to me, Bud's just seem higher. Like, what do you think is, is going on with that? So it's hard to say. He seems to just kind of based on those most recent expenditure reports, been spending a lot of money on texting specifically. And so they've been sinking some money into what looks like peer-to-peer texting based on the fund, uh, on the expenditure filings that he has to do with the secretary of state. But I haven't had a chance to talk with their campaign and kind of see if they, if they're willing to divulge their strategy, but it looks to me like is they felt good early about his numbers. Maybe they have internal numbers that are different that they're confident in. And that they're just trying to buy the cheapest possible primary win. And so they're spending the the least amount that they think they need to still win the primary election. And so they have more resources for the general. That'd be my best guess at the potential strategy. But it is a little surprising to see Bud in, in third and, and Tiernan in, in second. And that's maybe just based on people responding to TV ads and, and maybe that that won't close mm-hmm. their vote. One interesting thing, so I don't know if you all watched the Willamette Week endorsement interview with the GOP, some of the GOP candidates. Bob Tiernan in that interview said very specifically, I think it was that interview, said very specifically that he intentionally jumped in late, like it was part of his strategy. The premise was, one, you save a bunch of money, you're not spending money early. And so the alternative to that would be Stan Pulliam, who got in super early and Reagan, how much money did he spend last year? Do you have any idea? I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars spent before the field was even set, whereas Tiernan didn't spend it, didn't really waste any money before people were paying attention. And then the second was, he basically said it meant less, I think he used the term privacy, but another way of saying it would be scrutiny, no scrutiny from the press prior to jumping in. 
So it'll be interesting to compare people who were in super early and campaigned for over a year versus people who showed up at the end with a lot of money, how that shakes out. Yeah. I don't have a total on exactly what Bud spent before people were paying attention, but he did have more of a campaign. He was, he was paying staff. He was being active. He was trying to get his campaign set up and he'd been doing it for a while. Same with Pulliam. He'd been in the race for a while. And with Tiernan, I think my question has been the last time this happened was 2016 where you had Bud Pierce, who did get in early and spent a lot of money early. And then Alan Alley who jumped in, who was the same type of candidate mm-hmm. as Tiernan. He was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people knew him from before he had raised and spent a lot of money, was up on TV, but he ended up coming just short. And I think that, that had he given himself more runway, he might have actually had a chance to overtake Bud in that campaign, or at least given himself the opportunity to, to do that. And you were talking about the limited scrutiny. I, in that same newsletter, I linked five, maybe six stories about TRN related to unpaid property taxes, which he's since taken care of, and then stuff related to him testifying in court, maybe that he lived in California or was residing in California at that time. So there's been, he hasn't really avoided a lot of that scrutiny, maybe just shortened the amount of time voters get to hear about it, uh, it seems like. Exactly. So one final question on this, and then we'll pivot to the other races. When the primary is over and a GOP nominee is decided, is it possible that there will be a case to be made? I don't understand as well as you do the sort of lanes of this primary, like the MAGA lane or the Chamber of Commerce lane or whatever they might be. Is there a chance that there will be split votes among, say, you know, Stan Pulliam and Bridget Barden and Carrie McQuiston and Mark Thielman, you know, on one side versus do you see a, a spoiler potential or people who will make that claim depending on how the votes shake out? Or do you think it's kind of just considered a free for all? I mean, it is a free-for-all. I don't think that there's any nominee that thinks that they're the one that's supposed to win or that they were just supposed to be coronated. I think every campaign has put up, you know, the, the best operation that they possibly can under, you know, whatever circumstances and resources and connections that they have available. So, no, I don't think there will be a lot of that. I think I do. I have discussed with people the possibility that in the general election, because the nominee didn't get a large or is unlikely to get a large share of the vote, an overwhelming share that that could hurt them in the general election. I don't know if that's true or not. I haven't looked in to see if there's any data studies on that. But you could have a situation where only 30% of Republicans voted for the general election nominee. But I kind of tend to think most people will consolidate behind the Republican nominee just because we'll be in kind of that era where it's like, okay, Everyone will have forgot about the primary. It's red wave time. Let's just get the Republicans across the line. These are the ones we've got. And they'll have a little squabbling on the edges. We always have that. So Interesting. Well, now, Reagan, let's pivot to a race that's a lot less competitive than the one for governor. So we do have a Republican that will have the pleasure of taking on Senator Ron Wyden uh, yeah. coming this November. Give us the breakdown of that race, who are the players, how much has been raised, and who do you think is going to pull out ahead? And well, I think from the start, it is important to note that this is a bit of a suicide mission. Republicans have <laughs> attempted to put up good candidates against Jeff Merkley because he's kind of viewed as the weaker of the two U.S. Senate candidates. And I say attempted because we haven't obviously done a great job of that. But but Wyden is viewed, you know, people talk about, is he really an Oregonian because he spends time in New York and his family, his wife's family has company in New York and, and all that. But he still is pretty popular in Oregon, pretty popular overall, has a higher approval rating than Merkley did in the last uh, morning consult poll. But um, so taking up this suicide mission, 
businessman from Lane County, Darren Harbick, and he's raised the most money, $202,000. And his consultant is actually former state Senator Bruce Starr. And I think he's probably the likeliest guy to win this race, but I'll talk a little bit in a minute once I get through the rest of the candidates about another, you know, maybe 10% scenario. Uh, Sam Palmer is county commissioner, and I forgot to look up what county. I want to say Lake County, but that feels wrong. So I'll have to, I'll check on that real quick for you guys. But uh, he's raised about $90,000. He came to the race a little bit later, and his consultant is Chuck Adams, New Media Northwest. Jason Beebe is the mayor of Primeville, raised about $14,000. His consultant is Brian Iverson. And then you have Joey Perkins, who was the nominee two years ago uh, against Jeff Merkley. She's raised $21,000 and is a is a public QAnon conspiracy theorist, which created a lot of issues the last cycle uh, for her, a lot of pretty negative media coverage with that. And there was kind of a national trend that was being seen where you had these QAnon candidates pop up in these odd races. And so that was that. And that created a lot of problems, actually, for Republican candidates down the ballot who were asked if they supported QAnon because she was at the top of the ballot because it was kind of coming up. So um, I think Harvick's so, most likely to win. He's been most active, spent the most money, but there is kind of a scenario where maybe Darren Harvick, Sam Palmer, Jason Beebe all kind of split the rational, rational Republican vote. And Joe Ray Perkins kind of sneaks uh, with those people who remember maybe voted for her before, maybe didn't see the QAnon stuff, or maybe they love it and they're voting for her because of that. So, so I guess Reagan, my, my question is there, 200K doesn't really seem like that much money. How does Joe Ray Perkins not just win? I mean, I think if I'm not mistaken, she has either run for five or six cycles straight with her name appearing on the ballot somewhere. I feel like name ID has to play in pretty big there to some extent when, you know, the other candidates have a couple hundred thousand bucks at most. Yeah, I know Harbick has sent some mailers to high turnout Republicans. He's run some ads on Fox News. So I think he's hoping that that can help bring his name ID uh, up a little bit. But you're right. I think Perkins high name ID could give her a little bit of an advantage, but I, I tend to think that for the people who did see those negative stories, most Republicans aren't QAnon conspiracy theorists, don't think it's awesome. I think the, a lot of those can't, the, a lot of those voters are just going to pivot to somebody else. And Harbick is the person who they're most likely to have seen in the campaign trail in some form, whether it was, you know, paid media or in a, at a Republican meeting or whatever. Yeah. And Ben's always sending me this QAnon stuff and I have to tell him to tone it down a little bit so he's he's, he's one of the q dems growing population is that a, is that a thing is that a q dems q dems so the next i want to transition to cd6 primary ben why don't you kick us off with that so on the democratic side we've talked to a few of the candidates on this podcast what the latest polling is showing there's a, a poll from public policy polling which is a, a left-wing not super left, but like left of center polling outfit. I think it has an A minus rating from like 538. And it shows, I believe Salinas, I should have this in front of me, but I believe Salinas at 19% or 18%, I think 18%, and then Carrick Flynn at 14%. So this is notable for a few reasons. One, um, this is the first time Salinas has been in the lead head to head with Carrick Flynn since the millions and millions of dollars have been spent by Flynn. And because it's probably the last poll we'll see before the election, although who knows, anything, anything's possible. So I think the way that I am looking at that race is basically a two-person race, I would say. Cody Reynolds has raised a ton of money. Like I was looking at the Oregonians list. In fact, I'll walk Excuse through. me. He's loaned himself a ton of money. Yeah, that's a, that is a much better way uh, to describe it. So yeah. according, to this, according to this list, so we mentioned Ron Wyden's fundraising, $11.7 million. 
Cody Reynolds is second in Oregon at 2.7 million. I don't, did he loan himself all of that? Like 2 million of it, I think. Okay. He's raised about 700K if I remember right. So then other CD6 candidates, Matt West at 1 million, and he loaned himself a lot of money. Carrick Flynn at 910,000. So obviously this does not count independent expenditures. And then you go down to Andrea Salinas at 637,000, Kathleen Harder at 460,000, and Loretta Smith at 309,000. And I think that just about does it for the people who are actually raising. Oh, uh, Teresa, Representative Teresa Alonso Leon has raised 84,000. So this is an interesting race because it kind of is the exact opposite of what Reagan was talking about, about expenditures lining up with the, a predictable percentage in a poll. Like the amount of money spent to support a candidate has almost no correlation in this primary with what the polling says the voters are at. So I think it's probably a two-person race, although I don't think the winner is going to get more than 40% probably. Uh, real quick, I do want a, a real-time update. Sam Palmer is a Grant County Commissioner, so apologies for getting that wrong. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I think for Dems, you kind of have this dueling polling. Matt West dropped a poll a couple of weeks ago to Willamette Week that was multiple months old, actually, the time that he released it. And it had lit up significantly on Salinas, and now kind of looks like she's closed that gap. And you're right, PPP is pretty reputable pollster. I did note from the Oregonian article, there was a, a comment that said the Salinas campaign did not immediately release full poll results, despite a request from the Oregonian, based on limited information the campaign provided. It's possible another candidate or candidates reached a statistical tie with Carrick Flynn at 14%. So Wait, can it's I possible just... this is actually a three-horse race, and Salinas is trying to hide that by not giving the full polling information over to the to the Oregonian and with, other uh, journalists. With the, the, third, the third horse being Matt West, you would presume? I don't know. It could be Cody Reynolds. I mean, they've both been kind of spending a lot of money or at least raising a lot of money. I actually haven't looked at the spending reports. So I would guess it's West, but I, I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I've seen, I've seen actually more stuff from Reynolds, but I'm not in the 6th Congressional District. So the other reason why I see, and this will be in the liftoff, the other reason why I see Salinas is surging is because she just secured the endorsement of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. This is yes. the caucus. Uh, Blumenauer is a member. DeFazio is a member. Bonamici is a member. Bernie Sanders is a member. All the those folks on the left. That's a powerful group that probably could provide some resources in the closing months. She's already been endorsed by Bold Pack, which is the um, Latino caucuses super PAC. And then I believe there's another super PAC, I'll have to think of it, that committed to spending for her in the final months. So money obviously will not be the predictor in this race. But the other thing that Salinas has going for her, this is like, I've been talking to some people who think the, the voters pamphlet was like a more powerful thing five, 10, 15 years ago, which is, I don't, I don't know anything about that. But if you just based off voters pamphlets, Salinas's endorsements are like there is no second place. She's got Planned Parenthood, the League of Conservation Voters, SCIU, Bonamici, Governor Brown, Attorney General Rosenblum, Governor Roberts, all the labor organizations essentially. Oh, I didn't even know this. She's got Our Revolution, which is Bernie's pack. She's got Stand for really? Children. The, yeah. Our Revolution, though, if you look, I don't know if they've scrubbed them yet, but they have endorsements from all their previous cycles. They have a horrible record in Oregon. They do not <laughs> win very many races. They lose a ton of races, primaries so, and, and generals. My point being there, and there's like literally, there's dozens more individual. And I mean, she's got the Oregonian Willamette Week, Cam Hill News Register. 
So to the extent that endorsements matter, she will have a significant edge over her opponents. Carrick Flynn has like the mayor of Tualatin, the mayor of Tigard is endorsing Matt West. Um, so other candidates have Kathleen Harder's got some really good Salem area endorsements, actually. No, so guys, think- Carrick Flynn is going to win because he has Andrew C. Weber, who's President Obama's Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical <laughs> and Biological Defense as his number one endorsement. <laughs> That's going to win in the race. <laughs> so anyway, I'm being a little sarcastic. There. We like snarks occasionally on the podcast. But anyway, that's that's a sense on the Democratic primary side. This is one of those races where I think if it's not Salinas or Flynn, I think people will be surprised. But I don't think like I think people are expecting this to be close and to have, you know, some sort of unpredictable numbers because of the ridiculously large amount of money spent. But the interesting thing, Reagan, is on the Republican side in CD6, which is theoretically a relatively competitive race, much smaller numbers. Uh, Can you talk about the Republican primary? Smaller number, but very similar kind of situation in terms of candidates and what's happening. So you have probably the most well-known candidate is State Representative Ron Noble McMinnville. And his fundraising has been okay, hasn't been out of the park, but he has a lot more name ID. Uh, a lot more of the endorsements from a lot of the, you know, Republican politicians, groups that you would know. And so um, so he's one of the candidates and probably the most well-known one. The next one, Amy Ryan Corser, who ran CD5 last time, got about 45% of the vote against Kurt Schrader not spending very much money. But the candidate who kind of came out of nowhere was businessman Mike Erickson, um, and he's actually got the fundraising advantage. He's loaned himself, I think, over $150,000 now and has raised close to $300,000. So Ron Noble's at $140,000 raised. So Erickson is really kind of running a surprise campaign, kind of came out of nowhere. There's this situation that kind of tanked his previous congressional runs yeah. uh, where there was an allegation that he had paid for his girlfriend's not wife's abortion and dropped her off at a clinic which i believe he he kind of refutes that that telling of the events but in any event that caused him a lot of trouble before and as a result i don't believe he's endorsed by organ right to life so that could be obviously a factor in this in this race ron noble is supported by organ right to life so we'll see and it's kind of a name id versus money again and that, that kind of the party deciding or the kind of figure that the party likes with you have salinas who's kind of coalescing a lot of that support noble's kind of that same candidate on the cd6 side erickson's kind of the outside guy with more money and so it'll be kind of interesting to see how that plays out. And if it plays out the same for Republicans and Democrats, or if it plays out differently, I think that'll be really fascinating to watch. Yeah. So I've got the Oregonians uh, list here and they have Mike Erickson at 722,000 raised. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And they've got, they've got Ron Noble at 141,000, which is about where you had him. So five, five times more money for Mike Erickson than Ron Noble. Yeah, that's shocking. That's a big advantage. Yeah. Yeah. And it is a big surprise. Yes, I must have missed his most recent FC report as I've been on vacation here. Those were due kind of this Friday. So we were we were traveling. So thanks for updating that number. But yeah, so it'll be fascinating. You have again this kind of the most well-known figure versus the figure with the most money. So or the most, you know, money spent on their behalf in Flynn's case. So should we should we go to CD4 next? Yeah, go for it. CD4 on the R side, I believe, is just Alex Carlatos, correct? And he has, he's raised yeah. $1.9 But one of the, I think we were texting about this. He's spending mm-hmm. his money really quickly, right? Yeah, he has a pretty high burn rate. And so I haven't been able to get in to see exactly what that is. If he's spending it on fundraising or on voter contact or media. 
but yeah, he's the only candidate in the voters pamphlet. So he's really, he's the only candidate out there. He'll be the nominee in CD4 and, and all the Democrats already are doing their fundraising, their emails off of Alex Garlados and, and Kevin McCarthy being their, you know, their kind of opponents in the race. So, so yeah, yeah. we'll be looking at Alex Garlados on the Republican side of the fourth. The, the Democratic side, which you can cover, Ben, is a little bit more interesting. Not that much more interesting, though. It's a little bit more interesting. So Labor Commissioner Val Hoyle has raised 782000 I think. Yeah, so she's outside of CD6, she's the highest. So CD6 has the top three fundraisers on the Democratic side, and then Val, and then she's got three opponents who are all kind of in the same ballpark of funds raised. Andrew Kallick has raised 275000 Doyle Canning has raised 232000 and then John Selker has raised 185000 so anyway, on the Democratic side, you basically got Val, who's raised, you know, a couple times more than her next closest op- opponents. For everyone's reference, Andrew, I listened to the OPB sort of debate. It's a very short debate. Val is similarly situated to Andrea in her race with sort of the sort of like establishment support, organizational support, institutional support. She's got Merkley, Wyden, et cetera. Kalik is running sort of as like a new voice campaign. His take is like, voters don't want incumbents right now. We need new voice, new leadership. And then Doyle Canning is running the sort of, I would describe it as a Bernie Sanders kind of campaign, like far left. She's running on uh, Medicare for all and um, environmental policies. And then John Selker, I think he's a professor at Oregon State University. He did not participate in the OPB debate. So I think most people think Val is going to win. That's what I think is going to happen. I did endorse Val as I've endorsed Andrea Salinas. So there's my bias. But um, unless either of you want to push back on on that prediction, then we can head to what's next, CD5? Val will win. Val will win. Uh, Okay, CD5, Reagan, what is going on on the Republican side? Well, on the Republican side, we got a pretty hot ticket race, just like we have on the on the Democratic side. So it's interesting to see these races. I hadn't thought about it until we were talking and how much they mirror each other. Former CD2 candidate, businessman, Jimmy Crumpacker, he's running in the 5th Congressional District from his residence in Tumalo, which he claimed in the previous race. And he's running as, you know, outsider businessman and the conservative candidate in the race because he's running against Lori Chavez-Dreamers, former mayor of Happy Valley, she was a two-time candidate for state representative against uh, Janelle Bynum. She lost a very close race first time. I think that was 2012 and then 2014 in a rematch. Didn't do quite as well that time. So you kind of have, uh, again, more of a conservative establishment base off, although it's not quite as clean. Chavez Dreamer, uh, she's got support from Elise Stefanik and a pack that Stefanik has set up called, I believe it's called EPAC, which is to support uh, women Republican candidates. And um, that's a big push at the federal level is to get from Republicans in D.C. and across the country to get more women into these races, because um, I think really not only does it help the diversity argument, but I think also they've just shown that that women perform better, like three to five points better than than men do in a lot of these competitive races. And so they're trying well, to get more. Yeah, Republican uh, women into into the group. But one of the issues is that Lori and one of the openings, basically, I mean, I would have told you that Lori had this race locked up except for. She has not had support from Oregon Right to Life. Never got it in her two state rep races that I'm aware of. Doesn't have it this time. Jimmy Crumpacker has that support. Also got the endorsements of the Oregonian. And so he, they're both kind of running a pretty competitive race. And actually, can you reference that chart from the Oregonian, which I'm not a subscriber, so I may not be able to see it, to see where they're at on fundraising wise, because they just filed new reports. And I think Lori might have just took the lead again on fundraising, but it's been a pretty close race. And they're Lori? kind of in the half a million range, it seems like, last time I checked. 
Yeah, Lori surged in fundraising. She is up to 669,000 raised and Jimmy uh-huh. Jimmy is at 541,000 raised. So yeah, okay. very competitive on the fundraising. Yeah. So they've kind of been trading back and forth every fundraising quarter. Lori was ahead and then Jimmy was ahead and now Lori's ahead again. So um, it'll be interesting to see where that goes, but I think that'll be a really tight one. I don't have a good sense of who's going to win that one, honestly. So I think that's a that's a toss up right there um, and a true toss up. Do you remember how, so Jimmy ran in CD2. What place did he come in? I think he came in fourth. I want to say it was, I think it was, it was Ben's first. It was, I think, Bueller second, uh, Atkinson third, and and Crumpacker like right after Atkinson. And so he was probably, Um, I'll look up those results. So the reason I asked that is because some of his CD2 district is in this new district. Um, yes. So mostly just central Oregon or the Deschutes County section of the district is the same because I believe this new CD5 kind of goes from Salem, kind of comes down the uh, Sanium Canyon and then takes in kind of Highway 22 as you go into Bend, which I, I drove a ton. You go from Bend to Salem a lot when your dad's the state senator from Bend serving in Salem. So <laughs> you basically drove this, di- this new district now a ton. Um, and then so it has Deschutes County in it and then goes all the way up and takes in Salem and then Clackamas County where Here's your segue, Ben. Kurt Schrader lives. And that brings us to the Democratic side. This is another very interesting primary for totally different reasons. So Schrader is a monster fundraiser. According to the Oregonian, between January 1st, 21 and April 27th, 2022, Kurt Schrader's raised $2.2 million, which is, which is a lot of money. Jamie McLeod Skinner, his challenger, has raised a ton of money, too. But she's at 692000 So in any other race, she would be incredibly competitive. But because she's running against essentially an incumbent, although it is a different district, she's being way outraised and outspent. She certainly has the grassroots support, right? Like the, I think the way that the media has framed this, and I think this is true, I, I haven't fact-checked it, is like unprecedented county party support. So the yep. Deschutes County Democrats, Clackamas County Democrats, and I think one other County Democrat. Marion and Lynn County Democrats have all done resolutions. You're going to talk about resolutions in support of Jamie McLeod's get her over Kurt Schrader. And the reason I believe, mm. or at least this is the way it's being framed, is the reason why the county parties took the sort of unprecedented, the unprecedented part is endorsing in a competitive D primary. But the reason why they cite is because Kurt Schrader has the support of the DTRIP, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, which supports yes. Democratic incumbents and candidates across the country. So, Reagan, what do you make of this race? You're a Central Oregon guy. Yeah, I would say that McLeod's going to really tout, and this is where I think that she gets something wrong, is she really touts how well she did against Greg Walden in the 2000, and I think it was 2018 race that she ran against him, because she ran for Secretary of State in the primary in 2020. So in 2018, she ran for CD2 against Walden. She was kind of the dem sacrificial lamb. And she did, quote unquote, better than any Democrat has ever done. Number one, against Greg Walden in like a decade. And number two, in Deschutes County. She won Deschutes County. She's the first Democrat to do that against Walden. Here's the thing. Any Democrat running against Greg Walden would have won Deschutes County because Deschutes County has had a massive demographic change and has turned, is you know, for the first time in, in 2020, or maybe 2018 became a Dem majority registered, like Dems overtook Republicans in Deschutes County, been a Republican stronghold forever, massive population growth in Bend and, and an influx of, you know, and people changing their voter registration and, and all that has changed the demographics of the counties. The average Democrat probably would have beat 
Greg Walden in Deschutes County no matter what. He'd become, he'd gone, he'd kind of pivoted to Walden had from being like a, a true moderate Republican to really embracing and becoming pretty powerful during the Trump administration. And so he kind of embraced more of his conservative side once again, um, it, later in his, uh, in his terms, especially starting in 2016 and in 2018. So he had become much more conservative, more polarizing figure, not as much as the moderate Republican that he'd been portrayed as for so long. So I think most Democrats would have done that. So McLeod Skidder tells that I don't really, I don't really buy that. I think most people think, most Democrats think that Schrader is the best bet because he survived a GOP wave before in 2010 uh, against Scott Brune, where the NRCC came in. And this is the last time he was really challenged strongly and spent a ton of money. Brune raised a ton of money, uh, but Schrader actually did pretty well in that election. Um, and he, he fended off that tough challenge. And so I think most Dem insiders would tell you um, privately, but not publicly, that they think that Schrader is still the best bet. Did make a couple of mistakes, though. He didn't vote um, for the $2,000 stimulus checks. He talked about the second um, impeachment of Trump, Trump being con- like a lynching, um, and which he later had to apologize for. And so I think um, I think that, that if, if there's something that does, I mean, it's those two things. Um, but for the most part, I think Schroeder's got the institutional support, although all of the groups that are supporting him, a lot more moderate, as you talked about, but they're running ads, touting him as a progressive. Planned Parenthood is stuck with him uh, and a couple of the other right. major groups. Um, and so that could be the reason that Jamie well, I mean, doesn't I, uh, pull it off. I, th- I think we're forgetting the biggest one, too, honestly, which is that uh, he won the coveted endorsement of President Biden. Uh, mm. I was pretty shocked to see that in terms of that there. Uh, obviously, there's a shrinking number of people like Kurt Schrader on the Democratic mm-hmm. side who are still in Congress. And uh, Dems are likely to potentially knock off another one this upcoming primary with Henry Henry Seltzar, I think his name is. He's a pretty conservative Democrat from Texas. Quellar. Quellar, yeah, he's a he's pro life. I uh, believe he's a little bit more conservative on LGBT issues, also. Uh, but he might be. He almost went down last cycle, and it's looking like he may go down this cycle as well. But uh, yeah. I was pretty shocked to see the endorsement of Schrader by Biden because I thought that may buy him a little bit of backlash. But I mean. Uh, we've talked about this before and also written about it in terms of that, uh, you know, the right wants to take out Trader, the left wants to take out Trader, and uh, he just basically keeps on chugging as he has been now for well over a decade. So, well, and the way uh, the way the story goes is interesting too because I believe he's uh, Schrader secured the Biden endorsement like the day of or the day after Biden visited Portland. So you can just imagine him pulling him aside on the tarmac and being like, listen, mm. I'm in a re- I'm sure he framed it to, it sounded like based on the president's statement, it sounded like they have some sort of relationship. I wouldn't be surprised if Schrader is one of the people that Biden actually called to whip votes because most of the votes in the House Democratic Caucus were definitely going to vote for Biden's priorities. Schrader is someone who, uh, he probably wasn't sure on on some things. Um, so I think that was a personal ask by Schrader that was uh, responded to by the president. Yeah, and I mean, also, Schrader was one of the people potentially holding up the bill back better. So I imagine right. they probably had many conversations about that from a policy perspective. So I was pretty surprised by that. I thought that may make some people upset at Biden, but I haven't really seen any sort of that backlash from, I mean, you would know better than me, Ben, but from progressives or folks on Twitter or anything like that. But I thought that was a pretty darn big endorsement. One, just to have that kind of 
on the slot. But then two, I mean, there was tons of earned media around that also. I mean, that was like, that news story was literally everywhere. So, yeah. Well, I, I haven't seen backlash. I, um, I don't think a ton of people are surprised. I think Jamie put out a, a statement where she basically said, I disagree with the president and here's why. Um, there's, there's a couple ways that you could interpret the Biden endorsement. One is you could interpret him. This is him saying, I think Schrader has the best chance of winning the general election. Uh, to Reagan's point earlier, and he really doesn't want to lose the House. Um, or you could interpret it as a classic Biden move. You know, he's a relationships guy. He's an establishment guy. He comes from the party. Um, so supporting an incumbent is um, would not be a surprise on, on that front. So um, the other thing I, I find interesting about that is that just that Schrader is widely being viewed as he doesn't take as much of the heat. Joe Manchin is and Kristen Sinema have taken all the heat, but but Schrader has been a big impediment on the Build Back Better, and it took forever to get that thing through the House, and Schrader was one of the reasons why. And so I think it was kind of uh, the progressives don't quite understand the relationships piece, maybe, uh, at least some of the ones on Twitter that I saw. I saw a few tweets about it, but not very many. And they were basically like, why would Biden endorse the guy who's tanking his agenda? And well, it's like, it's not tanking his agenda. He's endorsing a guy that can help him hold the House just in case things swing back the Democrats' favor, right? And so I think that that's what it's about. It's like, doesn't matter if he's voted against his agenda, you know, 75, 100%. Uh, at this point, they need Dems to hold the House. And, and he's one of the seats that needs to stay. And, and the Congressional Leadership Fund, uh, which is a Republican uh, House-affiliated super PAC or, or targets House seats, has booked uh, a couple million in TV ads to take out Schrader in the fall, right? And so right. he's already a target. Uh, and so they know that they really need to circle the wagons. And it seems like D.C. is circling the wagons, Oregon doing a little less circling of the wagons for Schrader. So here, here my last comment on congressional, um, congressional races, and then we can move to legislative primaries. Uh, my theory, and I could be proven wrong on this, but regardless of who the candidate is in CD6 on the Democratic side, regardless of who the candidate is in CD5 and CD4, I think... Uh, Democrats in Oregon and nationally will circle the wagons around the nominee and they'll spend a bunch of money and they'll knock on all the doors. Um, There's been, I've seen some talk of like people who say they'd be very upset if Carrick Flynn wins. Um, I don't think that will stick to be honest with you. I really don't. Um, uh, I've heard some, I'm I'm sure there will be some in CD5 who are not enthusiastic about Congressman Schrader if he's the nominee, but I don't think that will be representative of the most resources um, and uh, grassroots support, including the county parties who endorsed his opponent. That's my assumption. Um, and in CD4, it's not, I, I don't think this is much, as much of a consideration, but that's my prediction is like, we're all going to, de- Democrats are going to vote how they're going to vote, but I think the, the money resources and, and manpower will be there to support the nominees and probably true on the right i'm guessing reagan i totally agree with that i think everyone circles the wagons for their nominees because this will be the most important election in everyone's lifetime as it always is and so (laughs) supporting your party nominee will matter more uh than if that nominee is is perfect all right so for the last section here um let's shift to the republican primaries for the state legislature uh reagan where do you want to start so I think we'll start in Senate District 26, which is kind of that north uh, um, 
section and I should have pulled up my legislative map, but again, my, uh, my vacation prep skills are, are very bad. So Senate District 26 is essentially an open Senate seat that was created. It was the redistricting kind of moved around what had been Alan Olson and, and Bill Kenimer's seats. And so they've been shifted. And so 26 is a, is an open seat that has the opportunity for Republican pickup. I believe that this is a Republican reg advantage state Senate seat or very close to it. And so you have a running former state representative, Daniel uh, Bonham, who was redistricted out of his house district. He was actually merged into Vicki uh, Breeze-Iverson, state rep Vicki Breeze-Iverson's um, district, now House Republican leader, Vicki Breeze-Iverson. And so he opted to uh, jump to the Senate. Uh, and I think it's great because I know him really well. Um, he's a really good guy, raising a ton of money. Uh, I think I saw him over 100,000 uh, maybe already. Um, and he has, he has an opponent um, named Steve Bates. He's a veterans advocate who was considered as a, an appointment um, and made the finalist list for um, Alan Olson's seat. But he was beaten um, in, the, in the county commission voting, um, as everyone was, handily by Bill Kenimer, who's now a state senator. Um, and, and he and Kenimer doesn't have a primary. He's a very competitive general election race. And hopefully we can have a chance to do a general election breakdown because there's lots of great races across Oregon that would um, really shift the balance of power pretty significantly. But Senate District 26 Republican primary, um, Bonham has uh, a lot of relationships. He's got name ID. He was really good uh, state representative. And so I think um, of the voters that know him from his old district uh, will, will vote for him again and he'll clean up there. Uh, Jamie Kate filed on filing day which means she attracted some Republicans who maybe thought that she wasn't going to run again. She's got like four or five opponents. Um, only one of them made the voters pamphlet, but it doesn't matter. Um, I've already gotten two mailers from her, nothing, because uh, I live in her district now, even though I'm down the street um, from Shelley Bossart Davis's house, which tells you uh, everything you need to know about Democrats, a redistricting map. And uh, You know, in, in the Portland win. metro area, we all live very close to each other, Reagan. So uh, I'm just going to put that out there. Yes, that's because you guys are uh, not doing a very good job of drawing your seats. I can help you with that, though, next time if you want. <laughs> I'm sure we'll, we'll give you a call uh, and ask for your yes, help. Absolutely. I expect to be included in those conversations. Um, and so Jamie will definitely win. Um, so the big seats, I think there's, I would say, two big Republican primaries that we really, um, you know, could change the way things are going to go. There's a couple of open seats. Um, there's a new open seat in Klamath Falls, the other half of a district. Um, so You've got um, Werner Reschke, who's in a district, and they kind of created a new open district in Klamath Falls. I believe that's Emily McIntyre, who's in a, a local school board member there. I used to work with her when I lived in Southern Oregon. She'll be great. She doesn't have a primary. So the two big primaries on the Republican side in the House, uh, three actually, House District 12, which is like a Eugene area primary. It's a Republican-leaning seat. Um, so when Dems redid the map, they created a new Republican-leaning Senate district. Um, because they had uh, a population, even with population changes, they had gerrymandered Lane County so bad um, that they couldn't get all the safe seats they needed out of there. So they gave Republicans a seat that was more advantageous to us. So in the state Senate, Cedric Hayden, but it created a new house, District 12. I um, mean, there's four Republicans um, and they've raised a grand total of uh, Bill Ledford. Um, and I, I don't have his borrow here in front of me. Um, but one of the candidates, Bill Ledford, has raised zero dollars. Charlie Conrad has raised $12,500, so $12,500. Jeff Gowing, who's the mayor of Cottage Grove, has raised $1,800. So Nicole DeGraff, who is a, uh, who's a mom, she's been an outspoken um, uh, advocate um, for um, you know, bodily rights or, or um, health care, vaccine freedom. And Nicole DeGraff, who ran uh, before in a heavily Dem seat, has raised $5,000. So total 
fundraising there is like under $20,000 in a seat. Republicans are almost guaranteed to win. We have no idea who's going to win. Nicole is the only candidate who got the endorsement from Oregon Right to Life. Um, Jeff Gowing, mayor of Cottage Grove. I was going to say, is there, is there any other key endorsements besides Right to Life that may swing that? Or I, is, I does, that endor- so. does that endorsement basically just wrap it up considering the amount raised? I don't think it does because I think that in order for that endorsement to matter in races, it has to be publicized. Order Right mm. to Life sends it out of their voter guide, but they don't um, spend money in these competitive primaries unless they have to. And I haven't noticed any spending um, from Oregon Right to Life. So there still is an opportunity potentially for another candidate, um, and depending on, on how well Nicole does. Um, and so I think, you know, the mayor, you know, Charlie Conrad has spent the most money, but it's only $12,000. Jeff Gowing's a local mayor. You could see some pretty big vote splitting there. So I really couldn't tell you who would win. If I had to pick now, I'd go with Nicole because she's run before in the area and has her own right to life endorsement, but I don't know for sure. Yeah, I was going to say, I Another- looked, I, I just looked at the websites for Charlie Conrad and for um, Jeff Gowing, and neither one list any endorsements at all. Yeah, and I, I don't know if there's other Lane County uh, area endorsements that I don't know about that might matter. Um, and so I'll text some, I'll text some local friends and find out. But um, so that one, the one race I do have a good prediction for you. So another seat that was created in redistricting was this, a Sandy. This, this is the only good seat. prediction of the podcast. Reagan, <laughs> I hope yes. you stuck with us, listeners, because it's coming right now. That's right. This is the number one primary that you need to know about. Uh, so it's Sandy M. Candy. It's this, uh, it's this area. It's Mill City, this state. And again, it's, just, it's actually Trader's 5th Congressional District. I drive through it all the time when I was going from Ben to Salem. And um, so you got two candidates. You've got Beth Jones, who is a, a local uh, lawyer. Um, she's raised about $25,000. She has endorsements from Kevin Mannix, Timber Unity, and um, you know Parents' Rights and Education and Medical Freedom Groups. And so that's one camp. Um, and then Ed Deal, he's a local businessman. He has the endorsements of Oregon Right to Life. So I think Ed Deal will win. So he's running uh, both as the establishment candidate in the in the sense that he has the most money raised and he has the backing of local politicians, Republican commissioners in Marion and Lynn County. But he's also running as the conservative candidate because he has the backing of Oregon Right to Life and is running as the only pro-life candidate uh, endorsed by them in that race. Um, but you know, Beth Jones has also got, um, maybe, uh, some of that grassroots support, but I really think that a deal is probably going to run away with that one. I'm just based on what I know, the priors, the race, the people I've talked to involved in that, they really think that Ed's going to, um, going to win that one. So, and that's an open, again, a new open seat. I was going to say lawn signs don't vote, but I just drove to central Oregon, um, last weekend and there was a ton of Ed deal signs along the highway. That's true. That is, that is a uh, fact. And then the last, there, there was a lot of Trump signs say... in that area in Oregon too, Ben. But... <laughs> he, he probably won that. He probably won that house district, Alex. <laughs> that is fair. So that got, is fair. You've got two races in the North in house district 31. Uh, Brad Witt is the Democrat that currently represents that seat. That's he got redder in redistricting. Um, I don't know that it'll be as competitive. Dems may try to put up a strong candidate, but it's getting rural and it's it's like the whole coast is getting more conservative, even though the registrations haven't caught up to that yet. So uh, Brad Witt's not running. He's actually running in an interesting Democratic primary in Salem, uh, where he has another house. Um, so it's an open seat uh, and Republicans are running Brian Stout, uh, who ran last time, has raised about $70,000. Um, his opponent is uh, Drew Leda, uh, who's only raised about $13,000. So I think Stout probably uh, wins that election. And then uh, Cyrus uh, Javadi 
and Glenn Gaither, um, Javadi has outraised pretty significantly in House District 32, which is the next one down. Um, that seat is, is open because um, Suzanne Weber is running for state Senate uh, in Betsy Johnson's seat. And that's a very competitive, pretty important Senate race. And so her house seat is open. So I think uh, Cyrus uh, Javadi, apologize if I'm uh, mispronouncing that. He's a local dentist. I think he's going to um, win that. I know his consultants. Um, and so I think he'll do well. But the, one of the more interesting races, kind of a sleeper race, yes. House District 51. Um, so this is actually the old House District 39, which is Christine Drazen's seat. So she left um, to run for governor. And so they had to fill her 39 seat. And in a pretty low attended PCP meeting um, that didn't really have a lot of runway because they were running right up on session. They were a couple of days in the session. They didn't have anyone. So they moved up the, the meeting time for that. So there wasn't a lot of notice. Um, James Heeb, uh, who's a, a part of the Young Republicans of Oregon, has some military background. He ended up winning that uh, appointment process. And then one of the opponents um, that he had in that race, Lisa Davidson, uh, is running uh, against him. And that's kind of a hot uh, race. You kind of have uh, an establishment, actually, uh, and, and lobby um, support um, in Salem, really actually backing Lisa Davidson. And James Heeb uh, is a very um, kind of grassroots, uh, local PCP Republican type of a candidate. Um, and he's trying to hang on to, you know, uh, his quasi incumbency there. Obviously, he hasn't been there very long, hasn't won an election there before. Um, and, and redistricting has moved around that district. So um, I actually don't know who will win that one. Again, it's one of the situations people in the area have told me if Lawn Science could vote, he would win. Uh, but they don't, so we don't know that for sure. Um, so it'll be really interesting to watch that. So I'll be watching, um, on election night, I'll be watching House District 51, uh, House District 17, uh, and, and State Senate District 26. Again, though, I'm pretty sure Dana Bonham's gonna, gonna pull that one off. Um, and then uh, CD6 and CD5, and of course the GOP governor, Republican primary. Um, and then I'll be you know checking out Democrats. Yeah, so Reagan, I wanna queue up a broad, one last broad question for you and then I'll go ahead and close this. Uh, sure. But a lot of people, I would say probably six months ago, maybe a little bit longer, they were really excited in general on the GOP side at least with the quality and the level of candidates that the GOP has been able to recruit uh, across the board this cycle. Uh, obviously that you know number of candidates, candidate strength, that obviously has evolved and changed over the past six months or so. Uh, take a broad stroke here. Where, like, are are you happy with you know, kind of from from top to bottom, right, from governor to local office? From your perspective, how how is the GOP looking from a candidate strength perspective uh, coming into twenty twenty two? And obviously, the primaries are still to happen, but as you said, uh, some of these are competitive, but many of them will be locked in place. There's a lot of good candidates at the top, at least from my perspective. What's kind of your broad thought on that? I would say looking at, and there's a bunch of races we didn't even cover um, that are just locked in races, no primary on either side. Everyone's gearing up for the general election, right? Um, I think I'm pretty happy with uh, Republican recruiting, especially in the legislature. The House and Senate Republicans, I think, did a great job um, in their recruiting. They've got a lot of rock star candidates in places where they've got to have those rock star candidates in order to overcome um, you know, the disadvantages that they need to. Because for, in order for Republicans to um, we don't have to win a ton of seats, one in the Senate, one in the House, I think, to break the super majorities. But if we want to be competitive or even come close to winning control of the legislature, um, we have to win in Democratic territory. And I think that there is a lot of energy and a lot of work that went into that recruiting because this is the year that feels like the last time that we got close, which is 
we were, you know, 450 votes in Southern Oregon away from tying both the House and the Senate in 2010 and, and you know, a couple tens of thousand votes from having a Republican governor. And it's still to come, you know, there was a lot of coordination and working together and just like magic that happened in that 2010 year that we've never been able to replicate. And so over the summer, we'll be, I'll be watching to see, is that coordination happening? Are people coming together? Are you seeing the marshalling of the resources happening on the Republican side? There's a there's a super uh, PAC that was formed, uh, or not a super PAC because Oregon uh, Campaign Finance doesn't have super PAC, but a, an outside group that has been formed uh, that has Greg Walden doing fundraising for Republicans. That is a huge sign to me mm-hmm. uh, that, that Republicans are serious about taking back seats in the legislature and are serious about chipping away at Dem control, right? And so if we see that stuff continue to happen, uh, the fundraising continue to happen, the candidates continue to do well and not make big mistakes. Um, and uh, we should talk about real quick, one of those potential big mistakes being um, how Roe v. Wade gets handled in campaigns, right? Maybe we can just touch on that. And, and um, I'm happy to provide a Republican perspective on that if we have time, but um, yeah, let, let's not do making it. mistakes is going to be it. important for Republicans. Let's do that really quick and then close out. Um, so Reagan, Sounds what good. is your, what is your, um, your brief overview of the implications of Roe v. Wade for Republicans? All right. So I will, I will, uh, so politically, I think um, a couple of things I think, um, and I could not find it for the life of me, but I went and I saw a tweet uh, that showed some polling from CNN and CNN had a poll obviously very early that showed that Democrat enthusiasm went up uh, seven points and Republican enthusiasm went up nine points after the Roe v. Wade decision, right? So I think that there's a lot of people at the federal level um, and even in Oregon who think that abortion is a losing issue for Republicans. And if you handle it wrong, it is a losing issue. And we've had a lot of situations where Republicans in, in states have talked about um, legitimate rape and things that are just, the, that is handling that issue wrong for on the Republican side. I think if Republicans handle it right, and what I've coached a lot of candidates to do is focus on where the majority of voters are. And in Oregon, a majority of voters in, in poll after poll and in nationally, you can show that they oppose uh, abortion in those late trimesters. Now, uh, Democrats will come back, uh, like Ben will say, that the va- very few number of abortions take place, but we still don't have any limits in Oregon. Oregon is um, has no limits, zero limits in place on abortion. And so I think that for Republicans, it's, it's important for them to focus on where there's broad consensus. And that is that kind of that, that late term abortion limits on a late term abortion and, and um, not allowing uh, babies who survive an abortion is a big um, Republican um, talking point and, and legislation they pushed in the legislature and got Democrats on the record on um, via bill poll maneuver in the last legislative session um, that said that if a baby survives an abortion, uh, that they have to be given certain medical care. Um, and so those talking points are the ones that Republicans have to focus on and, and they win those in polling. So if they do that, they can, they can not only survive the, the potential overturning or limiting of Roe versus Wade, they actually do pretty well with it and actually uh, hurt Democrats because that, that, that polling goes really well for Republicans. Um, ben can talk about the, the Democratic side, which I think is pretty interesting too. But the last point I would say is because I also think that the overturning of Roe v. Wade, if it happens, may not have as big an impact in Oregon because we've had such, uh, you know, such broad abortion law for so long in Oregon where we've not had any of these limits. We legalized and made abortion available even before Roe versus Wade. Um, and not everybody may know that. Um, a couple of years before Roe versus Wade, uh, abortion became completely legal in Oregon, again, with, with very few or no limits. 
And so that, and, and at the ballot box, every time there's been a, a, a um, initiative on abortion, on limiting taxpayer-funded abortion, it, it's been defeated, right? And so you have this situation where, because abortion is actually protecting Oregon, there may not be a motivating factor for voters um, in Oregon. And I think it could actually affect, you know, red states more, uh, more significantly. There could be more battles over it um, there. You, you will be unsurprised to hear that I uh, disagree. Um, so I think I think this will, frankly, I think this was going to be a really hard year for Democrats. And I think, um, and I'm obviously incredibly opposed to the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, along with 60 to 70% of Americans. Um, but if they do, I think that will, it will be an injection of energy into the Democratic um, electorate and and also Democratic volunteers who will be turning out the vote, the way that I'm thinking about it. And Reagan, to, to your point about Oregon, I've been thinking about this, like, because you're correct, Oregon has zero restrictions on abortions. I think we're the only or one of two states in the country where that is true. So over the last two years, because of the concern of overturning Roe v. Wade, there's like a handful of states that have joined Oregon, like Maryland, okay. Illinois, New York. They're all stripping. They're not all at zero restrictions, but they've stripped away a ton and they're all getting either to zero or are close to getting to zero restrictions on abortion. So the reason why I think that matters is I was watching the debate between it was the coin debate where Tobias Reed, Tina Kotek, and also George Carrillo and Patrick Starnes were there. And there was a question on Roe v. Wade, obviously, and what Tobias said, I think, is the framing that is going to matter, which is Roe v. Wade was always the backstop for people who believed in protecting access to abortion. Now there's no backstop. So what Tobias said is we're just one election cycle away from those rights being uh, eroded, taken away, changed in some way, um, and for you know a generation or multiple generations of Oregonians who are uh, accustomed to and believe that right is fundamental and constitutional, and um, it's 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 going to make abortion like like historically a Planned Parenthood or a pro-choice organ endorsement um, sort of was more signaling power. I think about like what kind of a candidate you were because I don't think there was a legitimate fear that at least an mm-hmm. organ that could be taken away. But I do feel like there, it is a different feeling on the left um, after that leak from the Supreme Court of I think genuine fear. Uh, and like genuine anger and anxiety that I think will be a huge motivator for people to participate in the democratic process. Um, so that's my take. Reagan says he wants to hit back. So Reagan, you're our guest. So we'll give you the last word on this. And then Alex, you should close. I think the number one thing that is different and I was talking, I'll give credit, uh, not by name, because I don't know if they want to be named, but uh, a friend I was talking to the other day, right after we had heard, uh, I called him. I was like, what are your take on this? And he said, I think the number one difference between when Roe v. Wade was decided and a couple, you know, in the in the couple decades that followed and today is that um, via Obamacare, birth control is very available and and it works pretty well. And that hasn't always been the case in history. And so I think, yes, you're right, Ben, it will energize and give uh, Democratic uh, volunteers and and rank and file voters who are really tuned into the issue. And, and give you guys more energy. I totally agree with that. But I do think that for the a broad stroke of the electorate, um, if if they can get free birth control or, or very low cost birth control, and it works most of the time, the need or the idea that they're going to need an abortion is diminished somewhat. And so it maybe doesn't add. We'll say it doesn't. I would say it maybe doesn't add as much flavor 
to uh, the, the independent or swing vote uh, and that abortion doesn't creep in as much to the, the issues there. It's still going to be a lot more um, based on the economy or, or the congressional level foreign policy with Russia, right? And it may not actually enter in. I think it might be where Roe v. Wade and, and the abortion topic really enters into the bases of both parties and energizes the bases of both parties, but they can't break through to the middle because of that. And I could be wrong, but that was his take, and I thought it was pretty smart. So I actually agree with a point from each of you, but think both your conclusions are wrong uh, or potentially wrong. So, Reagan, I agree, as we've talked about this many times. Uh, I think it any GOP candidate running for statewide office who talks about how pro-choice they are is basically just bound to lose. Uh, I'm personally pro-life, but I think electorally the pro-life position is better regardless. Uh, I also agree as Republicans. Said, kind of, for, for Republicans. Yeah. And kind of avoiding, you know, focus on those specific issues, and is, avoid it, maybe some of the pitfalls. Before you keep going, is that your belief because you think the base will leave if for, for the base leaves for pro-choice Republicans, is that your thesis for why it's a worse position? I think it angers the base and it doesn't really get you any points. I mean, I just remember always Newt, how Newt would talk about how pro-choice he was. And I remember that I wish I would have kept this mailer where I got this mailer and it was like Newt and Donald Trump are threatening your your, your right to choice. And I was like, it, it doesn't matter, Newt. They're going to attack you over it. I see. <laughs> no matter what your position is. Yes, Planned, Planned Parenthood has, is not going to give uh, Republicans, at least in the near future, I don't foresee them ever endorsing uh, a pro-choice Republican. They're always going to pick the Democrat as long as the Democrat is pro-choice. And so you, you're right, Alex, you can't win anything on that. Yeah, so I do agree as with Reagan on that. Uh, I also, though, do agree with Ben that Democrats have really been looking, I think, for an out this cycle because it's not great right now, right? We got inflation. There's a war in Ukraine. Uh, I mean, the price of everything is crazy. Interest rates are going up, all of that sort of stuff. And finally, something has actually happened where Democrats can sort of mobilize uh, their voters and maybe some of those independent voters who don't really care about elections in general, but sort of those, those specific issues. But I disagree with both of your conclusions. And I'm not saying mine is right, but I'm actually curious to where, uh, obviously, this will energize some people, but you know, where does this, because I mean, we just had John Orvik on last week, right? And I think he said abortion was like number seven or number eight. That or was number before, nine or something. that was before the leak. And so, so exactly. Yeah. So that, that, that's what I'm saying. That was before the leak. So I won't say that my conclusion is, is right, but uh, like how much does it actually move up the totem? Right. And I also think it just depends, like how well does a Republican handle this issue? Because I think whether it's Kotech or whether it's Reed, they're going to want to talk about abortion a lot. Whereas Drazen or Bob or Bud or whoever else wins, they're going to want to talk about crime, homelessness, inflation, et cetera. So it's sort of how well can the GOP candidate navigate those answers and pivot to the ones they want to talk about compared to being the ones that the Democrats want to talk about. Uh, so with that being said, and there's, Wait, there's some what. I have to I have to quote I have to quote the West Wing before we I was close. saying there's some wild things going on in the Zoom chat right now. But. So there's a West Wing quote <laughs> that basically said, I think this is uh, this is Josh Lyman who says, um, a lot of people think elections are about two competing answers to the same question, but really elections are about determining what the question itself is. So to your point, Alex, Democrats are going to want voters to be deciding on one set of questions and Republicans are going to want voters to be deciding on a separate set of questions. In Oregon, abortion access will be a, a major question that 
Democratic candidates will want voters to be asking themselves when they cast a ballot. And I think to your point in 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 purple and blue seats across the uh, purple, blue and probably any competitive seats, I can't imagine a Republican being super forward on um, abortion access. Yeah, so it'll be uh, interesting to see. But uh, Reagan, thank you so much, uh, one, for joining the pod and two, for preparing that list, because as we said, when we came into this, Ben and I had no show outline and Reagan spent hours preparing the show outline. So that's always nice when the guest does that. Uh, but Reagan, thank you for coming on. And before we let you go, if folks want to follow you, they want to read about your analysis, uh, they want to know more about you, maybe send you some hate mail or some angry <laughs> DMs, uh, where can they do that? The best place for all of uh, both the friendly and hate mail is Twitter. I'm at Reagan Knope. <laughs> you can find in my uh, bio. Uh, you can find my newsletter. You can find my website, uh, and you can uh, find my email address. Uh, and would love to hear the comments um, from everybody and what they think about that because I think this is a super interesting topic. Not only the primaries and how people will process the primaries, what happens in the general elections, and, and how um, Roe v. Wade is going to affect the election. I, and I am a political geek at heart, and so I just enjoy chatting about it. And, and and love uh, the opportunity to be on the pod and uh, you know become your your most uh, your most guested podcast guest. True, now, I think hopefully true. Number with my third episode. So. Yeah, and still you know the the powers that be at Oregon three hundred and sixty are still debating whether or not they want to make you the permanent host and remove Alex. It's an un, it's an un, unsettled question. So we'll, we'll see. What we I could mean. just we could remove Ben Reagan and then it would be a real source <laughs> of truth. You know. It could be you versus the Rational Republican podcast for uh, dominance in the uh, the right wing podcast space in Oregon. Very good. Uh, well, Reagan, thank you so much for coming on. And everybody, thanks for sticking with us and listening. Uh, please make sure you go subscribe to us on YouTube. Uh, we almost have enough YouTube subscribers to get our own custom URL. We are literally right there. So please go and subscribe to us on YouTube. Uh, make sure to hit the subscribe button on the podcast and give us five stars if your platform does so allow. And thanks again for listening. We'll see you in the next one.